When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. British Library in London, there is a manuscript copy of the memoir of Princess Golbadan, who was born in around 1523 and died in 1603. Known as the Humayun Nama, it tells the story of the origins of the Mughal Empire, of its founder Golbadan's father, Baba, and of her half-brother Humayun, its second emperor. In what is the only surviving female-authored memoir from the Mughal Empire, Princess Golbadan recounts her itinerant childhood across northern India and Kabul, the death of her father, and the subsequent civil wars during her brother's reign. She tells of her marriage at 17, of the regulations instated by her nephew Akbar, the then third Mughal emperor, which would later confine her to a ward haram, and finally, and perhaps most exceptionally, of what would be the first pilgrimage made by a royal Muslim woman to the Holy Lands. Golbadan's journey, spanning seven years and a distance of 3,000 miles, crossed the Arabian Sea through mountains and across desert before reaching Mecca, where her group stayed for nearly four years before returning home. My guest today is Professor Ruby Lau, historian and professor at Emory University, who has previously been on this podcast before to talk about Nur Jahan, the co-empress with Jahangir. Her latest book, Vagabond Princess, The Great Adventures of Golbadan, examines this largely forgotten manuscript and the life of the remarkable woman who wrote it. Professor Lau, welcome back to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you. I'm delighted to be back. Firstly, can you briefly give us a sense of who Princess Gulbadan was and how you came to her story? Princess Gulbadan was the daughter of the founding figure of the Mughals of India, Babur, sister to Humayu, the second king, who was in and out of Hindustan and aunt of the man who's called the Great, that is Akbar the Great. She was an itinerant princess, born in Kabul, and then in the aftermath of her father's victories, was the first girl in a caravan to India and saw the early foundations of Mughal settlement. And then when her brother Humayun was defeated, territorially defeated and then exiled, she went back to Kabul and then as a matriarch, older woman returned. But she carried on this, you know, itinerant lifestyle. So... I met Gulbadan when I was a graduate student in Delhi and basically starting my career as a Mughal historian. And the thing that stared me in the face was that there was no feminist history of this empire. And then through the translation of the wonderful Victorian scholar Annette Beveridge, I came across Gulbadan's memoir. 
And then I applied for a scholarship and I came to Oxford and held her book, which is housed in the British Library, as we know. You know, thanks to that book, I produced the first feminist history of the empire called Domesticity and Power in the Early Mughal World. So my relationship with Gulbadan has never stopped. It's a very long relationship. You mentioned there that she is someone who's around, lives for quite a relatively long time and is revered in her later years as a woman of wisdom and culture. Do you have any sense of how she would have been educated? Royal women taught at this time in the same way as men. So there's an informal and formal sense of education. One of the very strong strands of cultivation and being literate is really, of course, storytelling and storytelling through myth, through history, told not only by the women of the family, but also as a royal woman, she would have a lady teacher called a muallima come and teach her. And, you know, the classics would be taught, books pertaining to moral senses of the self would be taught. And, you know, strong storytelling traditions such as to be found in Thousand and One Nights. Now, that's just a genre. There were many of those. But also experientially, this is something I've thought about quite a lot. The experiential is really what mattered, which is what affects She's unusual in her writing eventually because of writing this intimate, what we call as a dual genre, a memoir as well as a history, and deeply affected by a feminine point of view. So all of these, and then the travels, the extensive travels. And this was also, you know, very much my investigations in my first book, the peripatetic nomadic character of the Mughals. When we think of Mughals, the great of India, the popular imagination is, you know, there's the Taj Mahal and there's the Kohinoor and what have you. You know, so the important question for me then, and also while writing this book was, in a world that is broadly and beautifully and animatedly shaped by movement and migration, what does kingship look like? And so I think that nomadic is not the word, but itinerant, I think, comes closer because nomadic has other kind of senses attached to it. So I think all that will have gone into her education in an informal way, watching her father. I have these scenes that I set through her book. She adored her father, Babar, and she particularly adored him looking at him while he used to sit and write the pages of the Babar Lame after he was in Nagra and so on. So I think it's a formal and informal sense of a cultivation of a person. And it would be the same form of education for boys who would also have tutors assigned to them. But there were specific requirements for a boy and a girl. And, you know, those, of course, were divergent, but there were also shared grounds, such as learning books of conducts, such as learning hunting, you know, reading the Quran, virtues, virtues as a human being, distinct, all of those kinds of things. And I think it might be important, given what you've just said about watching her father, to think about whether Mughal royal society at this time was primarily homosocial. So were men with men, women with women, were women living typically segregated lives? That's an excellent observation. So homosocial is a key word here, which is, you know, they thrived in communities, as Babar, of course, writes, how much he thrived amongst his companions. And also, you know, the extension of that point is that servants, as we think, are not really servants. These are close companions often because, for example, your taster has the most significant 
job because you could be poisoned to death. Or your woman companions, such as in the case of Gulbadan, there are many that, you know, the attendance of her mother and her father lived to be around her. And they had seen these women walk in the harshest circumstances of the dynasty's time and so on and so forth. So, so it is homosocial but not segregated. I want to make that distinction till Akbar's time, for the first time in the career of the dynasty, he builds the first stone-walled haram. And again, it was the point I was making in my first book. Up until then, there are, of course, as I was saying earlier on in the context of literacy, there are certain codes of respectability that you'll have to observe as a woman where you'd stay, what's going to happen, you know, what happens particularly during childbirth, for instance. But women accompanied Babur and Humayu all the time into warlike situations. In fact, Babur's sister, Hanzada, who Gulbadan was extremely fond of and does the most amazing portrayal of her, she was in the war, in the most important wars that Babur was leading in Samarkand in order to gain the seat of Timur, which he loses to one of his ardent enemies, a man called Uzbek Khan, Uzbek Khan Shabani. And he's able to exit from that city only after he barters his sister. So Gulbadan's memoir is also an extraordinary documentation of how many women were in the war, not only women, women and children, how many were bartered, how some were lost. One of the poignant accounts is her little niece, who she was very fond of, Akika, how she's lost in this battle of Chosa when her brother loses the battle of Chosa to Shesha Suri. And then there are, of course, they go together for parties, for picnics, for walks, for admiring the nature, many other things. So I would say it's more social, but deeply intersecting. So to give a grasp on the history here, we know that when she's still young, it's her half-brother, you've mentioned Humayun, who exceeds as emperor on the death of their father. But then we have another brother plotting to overthrow him. And we have these civil wars that you've just alluded to. And I wonder what you think we can learn from her memoir about Humayun, about the civil wars during his reign. Another really interesting thing that happens in Mughal history, there are certain kings and princes that are, you know, highly regarded and they're exceptional and they're great in their DNA, so to speak. And then there are some that have been dismissed badly in history, such as Humayu, her brother, or in my book on, on Empress, Jahangir was seen as a drunk and so on. And I think she portrays a really sensitive, humane, vulnerable picture, not only of Mayu, but also of her father. I mean, of course, Barber has been seen as this lover of nature and a poet and a writer and a great warrior and all that. She brings the vulnerability in her brother, which is why I think the genre of biography is so interesting because it takes away this cardboard picture and you're able to really bring Yes, you know, in my case, an empress, princess, but also that these are human figures, that people can relate to them, and that it's only through struggles they're able to do what they did, which seems exceptional to us. But then what is the history of that exceptionalism, if you will? I think sources like Gulbadan are extraordinary, unique in that. Do you think that what we get reflected through her memoir is a sense of the instability of the Mughal Empire? 
I think it is what I call the becoming of the Mughal Empire and the processes that go into it. So there are just in the sense of the history of the production of this text, I think it's really important to remember that she was the only woman invited by her nephew, Akbar the Great, when Akbar orders the writing of the first official history of the empire called the Akbar Nama. And by this time, of course, and we'll talk more about this, by this time she is back from this extraordinary, tumultuous, and highly scandalous <laughs> journey to Western Arabia. What Akbar and Abul Fazal would have liked, as I said, is a kind of classic contribution that many other men had written, where the male is centered, the empire really looks great, it's highly institutionalized, it's bureaucracy, it's administration, it's agrarian policies, everything is in place. And it comes to be that way by late Akbar. But what she brings to the fore, and this is the uniqueness, is this process that went into the making of the so-called great empire, right? What was happening? What were the struggles? So back to that question of the struggle of the monarchs and the massive contribution of women alongside in the very making and the enunciation of the principles of that dynasty. So I think she is seminal in showing the history as it was being made and from this gorgeous feminine point of view. So what is so fascinating about this is that what you're saying is we have these great works of memoir by the Mughal emperors and we have depended on them and they give this glorious story of triumph. But actually from this one surviving memoir by a woman from the Mughal empire, we get the underbelly. We get all the effort it took. We get all the other people, all the women who are involved in making it happen. The female perspective completely turns on its head, actually, our understanding of this period of history. That's exactly right. I would also say, so here's a visual I'd like to create, which I created for myself when I wrote my first book, which is, I was stunned. So the book, The Ehwale Humayubadshah, was well known to scholars. But it had been in the sense that Annette Beveridge had done the translation. It was published by a low price publication series in India. So had been easily available in translation. People knew this. And yet scholars had dismissed it. And it's a kind of a classic male division that is created that it's a soft society of women. It's hardly a soft memoir, right? I mean, it's about the harshest of travels, also soft and poignant moments. And it's not that it is just about women, it's about men and women in relation. And I think that in relation is key. So I began to, of course, read this very closely in Persian when I came to England. And of course, Vagabond Princess opens with that scene of my first encounter with that book and how besotted I was and how mesmerized by it I was each time I turned the pages. But here's the visual. After I did that work, I put that book in the center of my attention. And I said, now let me put all the so-called canon around it. Let me put the Akbar Name, let me put the Babar Name, let me put Badayani, let me put all the so-called classics. And who makes the classics? That's also a question I was asking. It's a very male way of looking and I can come to this later, but let me stay with the visual. So there were two things that were happening. The book is very unique. That's without question. A lot of the information that we get through her is not to be found in the, in the records. 
But there were also connections constantly I was making in the classic and the male canon in which, for instance, a lot of the information she has was mentioned in those chroniclers and documents and observations and diaries because there's many kinds. But the way of mentioning was different at times. For instance, there would be a one-line mention, which then you would find staggering detail in Gulbadan's text. So I began to pay attention to the one-liners in the classic canon also that were not to be found in Gulbadan's memoir, the other way around. What I tell my students all the time, and I write about this in the book, looking where we habitually don't look, or we've been told not to look. So it became an archival practice because I really strongly believe that thinking about sources is not just that a book is sitting there and you'll go look and you'll produce a history. I think there's an interaction we have as scholars, you and I, and with these texts and the history of production of these texts, what's going, what's being eliminated, both at the time and in the scholarly practice. Yes, there's a scholar called Marissa Fuentes who talks about reading along the bias grain. That's her terminology for it. And the way that she understands that is that it's, you know, sort of taking the metaphor we talk about reading against the grain in history, but she decides to sort of recast it as tailoring and the, the bias grain. And she's saying that actually you can sort of stretch to accentuate the women who were there that we can't otherwise see. And she's writing about enslaved lives in Barbados. And I found that a very helpful way of thinking about it, that, you know, those one lines that you have in those various places then allow you to kind of reconsider how you've approached that source or that particular fact or whatever until that point. You know, they give you that grain <laughs> that you can try and stretch and to see more of. So I think fragments, to use that word, I mean, why do they appear in these texts? You know, again, I'm jumping to the end of the book when the commander of the Hajj is sent to bring them back. There's one stray line in the Akbarnama that says the women did not want to return. Now, there's so much folded into that sentence. So, yes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. 
Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned the scandalous journey <laughs> to Arabia. Let's talk about that. So she, this is when she's 53 years old. Golbadan sought permission from her nephew, who's by then, as you've said, the third Mughal emperor, to go on pilgrimage to the holy cities. And this is the journey for which she's best known. Can you give some sense of this journey and whether you think this is a reaction actually to Akbar's order to seclude the women of the royal household and what we can learn from this journey specifically? So, yes, she's known for leading an all-women's pilgrimage to Mecca, which was, you know, as I call it, cluster pilgrimage, which was unprecedented in her time and later on. But this is a bullet point that people knew. And the reason why I came back to this book was basically two things that I had established in my first work I've talked about. She leads this Hajj, so one point. The second was that the manuscript that I consulted, her manuscript in the British Library, breaks off at folio 83. So when people began asking me about Gulbadan, these two facts started staring me in the face. I didn't want to make any assumptions, but I felt there's some relationship between the two. And as I dug deeper, there may have been many more, but anyway, I found five eviction orders against the Mughal women in Western Arabia by Sultan Murad III of Turkey that are housed in the National Archives in Istanbul. That led to several things. One is, as I said, this was a bullet point history that people knew that, yes, she goes on the Hajj. And that's where my first book stops. I wanted to do several things. And this is the bulk of the book. This is the new story. And this is the new Gulbadan I have met. I wanted to chart every step of the journey from starting from Fatehpur Sikri. It's a contest, yes, of Akbar's authority and being behind the Haram walls. And this, of course, links with my proposition of her commitment to an itinerant lifestyle. But she does this within the terms of a cultural language that was available to us. So how would she experience, let's say, freedom? And the language of the pilgrimage was very much within the terms of that she starts this journey. So I wanted to chart what kind of ships they traveled on, what happened when they leave Surat, you know, what was the nature of the ship? what happened on the journey, the first point of entry, Jeddah. Our senses of the pilgrimage are grounded in some, some gorgeous books. I mean, amongst them, Sir Richard Burton's beautiful account, which I've loved and read extensively and many others. But I felt that the 16th century, of course, not only the geographical and cultural landscape of Western Arabia, but my suspicion was that even the so-called pilgrimage itself would be very different. So I delved into an entirely different and new historiography, and I trained myself in Ottoman history. You know, sources, of course, I leaned on my fabulous Ottoman history colleagues to understand, to learn. It was really wonderful. So each of these things was, the pilgrimage is, is very different. But there were three clues that were coming from the orders themselves, and they're very related to this whole journey, and I'll quickly talk about them. 
One is sadaqat, that was there all the way through in all the five orders. The second, the word mujabir, from where actually the title of the book comes, was in all the five orders. And the last, the most stringent word in Ottoman Turkish at that time, called Nameshru, and I sat with tons of Ottoman fantastic scholars to really understand the implications of that word, which actually comes in the fifth and sixth orders. So first of all, mujabir, and this relates to my point about the pilgrimage. I chart in the latter half of the book, the presence of both male and female mujabbers. And sojourners is not an exact translation, but will do in some ways. Basically, these were people who, yes, did the pilgrimage, but traveled extensively in Western Arabia as seekers. So one of the important things about pilgrimage was, and I think remains to this day with varied meanings, is what is the intention of a seeker? What is she looking for? And so travels were very much part of it. Looking at gorgeous architecture was very much part of it. I mean, you know, people like Queen Zubeda, who then eventually gets very taken by the dryness of the land and spends over a million golden dinars to build the longest road between Mecca and Kufa in Iraq. These are the ancestresses of Gulbadan who she will know about. From her own household, her sister-in-law, Bega Begum, who spends a very long time in the Hijaz, we don't have very much on her, but we know that when she goes back, she builds Humayun's tomb, the gorgeous mausoleum, and she brings 300 Arab masons who then live around there and actions like that. And Gulbadan very much comes into these mujabbers. So the relationship in the orders is that right from the start, Sultan Murad is saying, these ladies of Akbar the Great have traveled here and now they are living like mujabbers, long-term people. And the orders are extremely significant. They are issued to one of the most important political moral authority, that is the Sharif of Mecca. He's among them. Also the Sharif of Medina and local administrative authorities. The scandal was basically that Murad and his ancestors conquered Arabia, parts of Egypt in 1517, and they always stayed away, as many Islamic monarchs did, away from Arabia, mainly in Istanbul. But they had to find a way of establishing their legitimacy and authority within the framework of Islam. And one of the key principles was, again, within the context of Islam legal framework, is that they enunciate themselves as servitors of the holy cities. That is, they become the protectors of all, whether they are pilgrims, Bedouins, residents. It's very complicated way in which they work this authority. They're always walking on delicate grounds, whether it's the Sharif of Mecca, whether it's negotiating with Bedouins who help the pilgrims move to various places in the 16th century, whether it's transmission of grains that comes from Egypt. So 1577, the year Gulbadan and a party lands, is a time of extreme shortage of grain. And so she not only disperses the formal huge quantities of gifts and arms that are sent by her nephew, she also disperses, and this is the second word, sadaqat. And I go into its meanings and its importance morally, ethically, 
And she distributes that along with women that go with her in all sorts of places in Mecca, Medina, they travel to the north, other holy cities, and it's nonstop. And that's when basically the news people carry the news to Murad III and he gets livid. But the women stay on after the first two orders. And that's really interesting. So we have, in other words, generous, charitable behavior that is fracturing relations between the Mughals and the Ottomans. How long did they remain in Arabia and what ultimately forced them to leave? So it's charitable behavior, but the important thing about that charitable behavior is that that is basically what establishes the legitimacy of Sultan Murad III. And the women are basically walking over his toes, right, in that. But also it makes Akbar the Great shine. And this is the moment in which every Islamic monarch is aspiring to be the great millennial sovereign. Right. So there's this unspoken tension that's going on between Murad and Akbar, so to speak. These women stay for four years and eventually they leave in April 1580 as the fifth order with that castigatory term called Nameshru, basically meaning un-Islamic behavior or creating chaos, which is rooted in Islamic theology. The word is called fitna and dates back to the time of Prophet Muhammad's favorite wife, Aisha, when she leads the battle of the camel against Ali, the contender to the caliphate. And over time, it's come to be ascribed with Muslim women as a very demeaning, very derogatory word and so on. This is the interesting side. Although there is no formal recording of all this that is going on in the Ottoman records, it is not insignificant that Akbar then sends the commander of the Hajj to bring the women back. And that line, the women did not want to return, you know, exploration of the senses, both in spiritual and I think in the sense of self. And of course, they come back, they return, but there's a shipwreck in Babul Mandab, which is right next to Aden. So that was another history I had to get into, how the salvage operations were conducted from Aden, how they were brought, what all this looked like. And of course, there's lots on Gulbadan's Hajj in the Akbar Nama, but these are very sanitized <laughs> depictions. And those are the sanitized depictions that I think survived in public memory, or oh, this old woman going on the Hajj and coming back. <laughs> Can I ask one last question about the Hajj, which is, would the royal rites and ceremonies, both along the way and when they had arrived, have differed from the experiences of ordinary women and men who undertook the same journey? I think the rites were exactly the same. And, you know, a lot of ordinary people were given passage on imperial ships. It was a state policy to support them. And from what I could chart from the Ottoman Arabian sources and on pilgrimage, people like Evliya Chelebi, who was an Ottoman bureaucrat and did extensive travels in Arabia, wrote about it and so on. The rights were exactly the same. There was no distinction, except for royalty. There was a policy, and this is, of course, the same thing. There was a policy of issuing a pass by the Ottoman government. And so people like Gulbadan would be, you know, special guests. They would be very special ways in which they would travel. I mean, this was part of my journey to chart them in the book. Now, as you say, there is only one surviving copy of her account. And as you've also told us, it's incomplete. It breaks off mid-sentence during the description of the blinding of her stepbrother. 
What do you make of this? Is this an early act of censorship or is this simply a familiar example of damage because of the passage of time? I think there are two very solid ways to, and solid I mean archivally and historically ways to approach this. And again, I've had very extensive, my own research, but also conversations with art historians, manuscript experts, and people who've written about this. When somebody wrote an important manuscript such as this, and you know, the first line is very significant because it establishes in her memoir, it establishes the legality of the invitation. She says, a hokum, an imperial order has been issued. So when something like that happened, her contemporaries along with her amongst other men was a man called Bayezid Bayat, an officer, and then very important who'd seen Gulbadan through pretty much all her life. Even the water carrier, a man called Johar, who in this battle of Josa that I was mentioning, he actually saves Humayun and then stays with him, travels with him through his exile in Persia and so on and so forth. So even he, by this time, when Akbar is inviting the older servants and family members, these two people are invited. So multiple copies of these were made in the atelier. Of these two, let's say Johar and Bayezid Bayat survive. We don't have extra copies. So this was the first thing that had intrigued me. If those had survived, what has happened that this hasn't survived at all? The second thing is now that I have charted this whole journey of Gulbadan and going by everything that I've established around this extraordinary debate, the context of the time, in other words, that I have learned a great deal about this person and her society, and the imperial operations. There's another thing I'll say. The sensorial policy. So Akbar is a very interesting, this is a man I've been thinking about for 20 years, along with all the women that I've been thinking about. He's, of course, a really experimental, interesting, syncretic man. But he was also, not surprisingly, highly ambitious, very egotistical, and one thing that I learned during the course of writing this book, which I hadn't understood either in the case of Empress or Domesticity and Bar, is how highly sensorial he was. And so it is not surprising that one of the most important counter histories to the Akbarnama, that is Badayoni's three volume, Muntakhap Uttavarik, was written in hiding while the emperor was alive and was brought to life only after, because it's a detailed criticism of Emperor Akbar. He feared for his life. Akbar had backed off a couple of important Muslim clerics to Mecca. So all this documentation of his censorship, I've charted. I've also said earlier on that, you know, there are sanitized versions of this trip. And nonetheless, these very enticing fragments float into even the imperial history. So I think I'm at a point as an expert in this field to definitely surmise that I think these pages were are likely the chances are given the sensorial policies, they will have been removed because, you know, from the 19th century onwards, some of the finest critics have suggested that this memoir definitely continued way beyond where it exists now. So if you look at the imperial seal, which is the seal of Shah Jahan, the man who really admired Akbar the Great, his grandfather. This book was actually at one time in his imperial library. And the seal itself actually suggests 
that this would have been a longer book. And I have no doubt that Gunbadan, for whatever reasons, I mean, those are intentions, we can never fathom intentions of historical subjects. But given her storytelling poise, given her sharing, I mean, the bartering of Khanzada, it's an extraordinary moment. Why wouldn't she write about her own extraordinary cluster pilgrimage? So those are my assessments. To close then, may I ask you why you think this work by the first and only woman historian of the Mughal Empire has for so long been reduced to what you call a little thing? How can we restore Gorbudan's life and her name for the future? You know, a very powerful question and what has driven me to write this. I think writing history is a very delicate and a political process. And I've now begun to call it a male disbelief. And I think consistently feminist historians, I'm not exclusive in this, any number of them and us have experienced these questions. So the question with the availability of Gulbadan's manuscript, I was asked when I was writing my first book, you know, where are the sources? How are you going to write about a domestic life of the early Mughals? And right there was the source. And a seminal source. And as I said, with the visual that actually it's all of those sources. When I was writing about Empress, of course, by then I had established a place as a scholar who has thought and challenged the question of evidence. And in her case, the sources are stupendous from literary to visual to coins to paintings. And so one scholar said to me, isn't this a representation or aren't these in representation? And I said to him, I said, what is not representation? Isn't Anbarnama a representation? So there are those cases. I think writing this book is in a way a story of Gulbadan, but it's also a story of erasure and practices of erasure in her time and today. You know, I've also been thinking, and this is a project Hopefully, I should be able to swing very quickly. I think there's a long genealogy here. I think Annette Beveridge's Yale asked me to do a new translation of Gulbadan. And I think Annette Beveridge's translation is exquisite. And the kind of work she has done in that translation, it's a translation that represents a certain time. In her case itself, it represents a certain kind of time. It's a Victorian translation. Nonetheless, it's an exquisite scholarly endeavor. And she learned Persian at a time when she was going deaf, which is not a small thing. At the end, she has this gorgeous index of about 100 women and drawing kinship. I do that kind of work, so I know what that means. Doing kinship charts of you know, you'll have 25 Salimas in the record, is really a lot of work. So I have now got a contract with Yale in which we are going to reproduce that translation and I'm going to do a whole biography of Annette Beveridge to begin with and then Gulbadan and then I will bring myself in that epilogue because I think these are the ways to take care of the erasure. And I think people are very familiar. There's a lot of interest in these questions of why particular forms of texts are erased. And as you said earlier on, I've used that title of a lovely book. It turns history upside down once you go to these texts. So interesting that what you're going to do next is bringing that dual perspective that you talked about, Golbadan, bringing in her work to your own. 
We shall look forward to that with great enthusiasm. But meanwhile, let us not detract from the fact that Vagabond Princess is now available. And if people want to get into the writing of a 16th century woman telling us about the Mughal Empire, telling us about adventure in Arabia, this is the one to pick up. Professor Ruby Lal, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's a delight and I, I loved a second conversation. I look forward to many more. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.